Good morning, church. Uh, what, a, what a wonderful way to celebrate so many beautiful commitments and things that God is doing in the life of this church and really his church across the world. And I'm excited to celebrate Commitment Sunday with you all today. It's kind of a new thing for us, and uh, we've got several things that I want to cover and, and encourage you with this morning, and so we need to get right to it. And uh, I want to begin with kind of a, a quiz for you. Um, maybe that's one way to look at it, maybe a game. Let's be honest, it's a sermon illustration, but just go along with it, okay? I'm going to show you a picture, and uh, I want to know what you see. So the, the goal here is for you to identify the object of the picture that will be on the screen. Let, let's start with the first one. You might tell what that is. You can just shout it out if you can tell. It's an eraser. Good job, right? That's what you see. That's what I see. I see an eraser. What's interesting about that picture is that my four-year-old son, David Wu, when he sees that, he doesn't see an eraser. He sees a phone. Right, he will grab that thing or anything of similar dimension in our home and he will walk around and he'll dial numbers and he'll have phone calls, man. I mean, he loves anything that resembles a phone. Right, so he sees a little bit differently. Let's, let's do another one here. See if you can tell what this next picture. Can you tell what that is? Anybody say it? Bed sheet, right? It's, it's a sheet. You put it on your bed. That's, that's what I see. That's what you see. You know what my daughter sees? She sees the opportunity to build an amazing fort that will just cover the entire upper room of our house, seven different breakdowns in rooms where stuffed animals can go in or friends can come in. That, that's what my daughter sees. You see a sheet, I see a sheet, she sees a fort. Let's do one more picture here. What do you see in this picture? Front yard, right, that's our front yard. You see a street. You know what my oldest son sees? He sees the perfect venue for every championship game you could ever imagine that needs to take place He's made highlight videos, he's had drafts, he's had last second touchdowns, he has seen amazing things take place in what you and I would see as the front yard. Here's the point to the illustration. Uh, we typically see things that often are limited by our own imagination, and there's something incredible about a child's imagination, isn't there? Right? We see an eraser, a sheet, a yard, they see something completely different. And we can all relate to that because we all can probably think back on our own childhoods or maybe even now in our own experiences, those, those moments that prompt us towards imagination and creativity. Children are especially good at this. In fact, there's a, a professor at the University of Minnesota, her name is Stephanie Carlson, who estimates children spend about two-thirds of their day in imaginative play. Two-thirds of their day just engaged in their imagination. There have been some great Quotes about imagination, let me read a few of them to you. Albert Einstein famously said, to stimulate creativity, one must develop the childlike inclination for play. Pablo Picasso said, every child is an artist. The problem is how to remain an artist once we grow up. Right, easy for Picasso to say that. But, but seriously, though, he hits on something, doesn't he? Right? There, there's this kind of notion, and even the way that we instinctively think, that as we get older, we we kind of leave imagination in our childhood, right? That something begins to make us see, well, this isn't really for adults. We need to operate our world in realism. And, and creativity becomes something that is a gift that only a few people have. Well, they're really creative. I'm not. And those moments that we experience some sort of burst of creativity or imagination seems to be circumstantial, an aha moment that we can't really comprehend or track down or control. And so it just happens and we rarely engage what it means to actually believe and imagine. Well, this has become increasingly critical, especially in today's context. In fact, Harvard, Harvard Business Review wrote an article uh, at the beginning of the pandemic and began to 
explore. What do we do with this new reality, these disruptions, these, these challenges, these obstacles? And one of the statements they made in the premise of the article was that now more than ever, we need imagination. You see, what imagination does is it allows you to take risks. It allows you to see potential solutions that other people don't see. It allows you to strive for certain ideals that we should pursue. And so when we disengage from imagination, we, we find ourselves drifting into a realism, right? We're just gonna be realistic about things, which in some respects is actually better classified as pessimism. And that realism and that pessimism can almost become a self-fulfilling prophecy because we never dare to dream. We never dare to imagine. I love this one quote that's in that same article. It says, with imagination, we can do better than merely adapting to a new environment. We can thrive by shaping it. Let me say that again. With imagination, we can do better than merely adapting to a new environment. We can thrive by shaping it. Which leads me to our opening question. What's your life look like right now? Is it anchored more in realism? And if you're honest, maybe a shade of pessimism that limits creativity and dreaming for what God has for you? Or is it anchored in hope? Where you strive for those ideals? Are you simply surviving? Or are you thriving within this world around you? Are you just adapting to new environments? Or are you shaping them? Right, that's the question that I want us to engage with this morning. So let me show you one more picture, church. What do you see? Do you see something that is confined by a view of realism? Do you see a representation of people that come together and simply just try to survive their circumstances, adapting to the environment around them? Or do you see the opportunity to thrive and to shape the world around us. What do you see? See, the beauty of imagination is that when we anchor it in the gospel, it's not really what we imagine, but it's what he imagines for us. And that should unleash all sorts of courage, all sorts of creativity that is anchored in an unwavering hope. That's what we should see, and when we dare to dream what God can do in us and through us, that's why we gather, to foster those dreams, to talk about how do we pursue them, how do we live those things out, how do we encourage one another in those things, and not only do those dreams begin to take shape, but then we are able to return to this consistent promise that no matter what we think or imagine, God can do immeasurably more. And that's what I want us to be encouraged with and celebrate today. And so if you have your Bibles, turn to Revelation chapter 2. We're going to use our current series to dive further into this, this question of what is it that God wants to do in us and through us with that imagination pursuing his calling. We, we started this series on the church, uh, letters to the churches in Revelation a couple of weeks ago. Uh, last week, we were able to focus in on the first letter to the church in Ephesus. We didn't, we didn't read through the entire letter. Uh, we're going to break down each letter in two parts. Last week, we focused in on the things that are affirming for the church in Ephesus as well as the concern. Right, the word of affirmation was, I see your good deeds, your hard work, your perseverance, you're testing false prophets, you're, you're not practicing the things that the Nicolaitans do, you're, you're doing all these great things, yet I hold this against you. Here was the word of warning. What was the warning? You have fallen from your first love. You have forsaken your first love. We were talking about this tendency towards drift, 
right? That they were no longer as loyal to Jesus. It wasn't that Jesus wasn't or was unimportant. It was just that he was no longer the most important. And when Jesus diminishes in his importance in our life, we were susceptible to drift and slowly and steadily grow wayward. And that was the risk that was facing the Ephesian church. So what was the remedy? The remedy was remember the height from which you have fallen. Remember what it was like at first when we first fell in love. Repent from your current mindset and do the things you did at first. Remember and repent and do. So that was the admonition. And so now this morning we get to see the final word of exhortation in this letter to the church of Ephesus. So follow along with me in chapter two, verse seven. It reads, whoever has ears, let them hear what the spirit says to the churches. To the one who is victorious, I will give the right to eat from the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. Let me read it again. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the spirit says to the churches. To the one who is victorious, I will give the right to eat from the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. Okay, a couple of quick observations through these final remarks that we see here to the letter to the church of Ephesus. The first is it begins with this exhortation that you're gonna find in every other letter. Whoever has ears, let them hear. Let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. And so the connection I want us to make is that if we're ever truly going to dream and envision and imagine what God can do in us and through us, it has to begin by listening to what the Spirit says. Are you able to do that pretty well? Like, how would you evaluate your capacity and and ability to understand and listen to the Spirit of God? To me, if I'm honest, that's an elusive answer. Like, that's a hard question. Because a lot of times we find ourselves going, well, I think this is what God is saying. How do I know definitively this is what God wants me to do? And I've always returned to some just fundamental truths, right? The things that God for sure wanted us to know, he put in writing. And so you want to know what he's saying, he, he wrote it down. So part of it is understanding his word. The other aspect to me is prayer. Right? The more committed we can be to the word of God and to prayer, the more we're gonna open ourselves up to listen and hear what the Spirit says. But even then, I think we can take it a step further rather than just say, hey, read your Bible and pray. It's how do we spend that time in his word and in prayer to make sure that we truly listen to the Spirit of God. Here's, here's what's interesting is that we don't talk about listening much in our society. Uh, I came across another Harvard Business Review on this particular subject or an article about this subject. And they, they made the observation that it's interesting that we'll graduate people into society that are great readers and terrible listeners. And yet we're graduating them into a society where they're asked to listen three times more than they're ever asked to read. It's such a critical part of our communication. And so my thought was, well, if we're not super effective at listening to each other, then maybe that's the reason that we're also struggling to listen to God. And if we can figure out how to just become better listeners in general, maybe that will influence our approach to understanding the scriptures in our time in prayer. And and so we all know the reason we struggle with listening, right? It's distraction. We all get distracted, right? It doesn't matter the situation. You could be at work. You could be at school listening to a teacher. You could be at church in a sermon. And then all of a sudden your mind begins to wander. What do I need to get at the grocery? What are we doing tomorrow? I know you guys have made lists before. You're not fooling me, Right? Our minds wander. You know why? Here's why. The reason is, is the average speaker uh, speaks, whenever we're asked to listen, the average speaker speaks around 125 words a minute. I think I'm a little more than that, but the average speaker is 125 words a minute. The human brain can process language way faster. They don't know exactly how fast. A lot of estimates say 400 words a minute. That's why I speak faster. I'm just trying to challenge your brain to keep up. Right? Or, or some think it's even higher than that. So the reality is, is that when you're asked to listen, 
You are asking your brain to slow down and function at a level that is way below its capacities. So you instinctively keep thinking. And when that happens, your mind wanders, you get distracted, and you miss what's actually being said to you. So the article gave some pretty practical advice that I thought could apply not just to life, but to us spiritually. Two things that I would suggest to us this morning to help us listen to what the Spirit says. One of the things the article mentioned was, look for the main idea, don't just focus on facts. We're almost uh, ingrained through our education system to, to look for the facts, right? What's gonna be on the test? What am I gonna have to regurgitate on this? So here's the fact, here's the fact, here's the fact. We take notes like this in sermons, right? We hear, here are the details. And if we're not careful, we'll miss why those facts are even included. What are those details supporting? What is the main idea? So we'll read scripture, we'll listen to the words, right? We might even go as so far as to memorize the facts of chapter, verse, and book so we can refer to it. But do you really stop and reflect upon the main idea? Not just of what it means in that particular paragraph or that particular chapter, that particular book, and in the whole context of scripture, but what is God's main message to you? What is God trying to say to me? What's the main thing I need to learn here? That's the difference between reading God's word and meditating on God's word. When we meditate on the word of God, we better position ourselves to listen to what the Spirit says. The other thing the article suggested that I thought was applicable was being aware of our emotions. Emotions often limit our ability to truly listen. We talked about this several months ago in our conversation about truth when we were doing our series on the armor of God, right? And that, that tendency towards confirmation bias. The point is this, when we hear what we wanna hear, that makes us feel good. That's the emotion we want. And so we are inclined to just listen to the voices that tell us what we wanna hear, even if it's fictional, a stretch of the truth, doesn't matter. Our emotions make us listen to those things. When we hear things that bother us, make us uncomfortable or offensive, we, we push them out. We don't like those emotions. And so that prevents us from hearing things because we don't want to hear those things. So part of the other thing we have to do is recognize the role that emotions can play. And so a lot of times what we'll do is we'll go to the scriptures, we'll go to prayer, and we'll just look for what God to tell us, what we want him to tell us. Do we truly go at that spirit of surrender that doesn't say, hey, Lord, confirm this, but just simply, here I am, Lord, speak. Your servant is listening, and even if it's not what we want to hear, are we willing to listen? Right, so, so we need to follow suit with this word of exhortation. If we're gonna be able to dream and envision what God has in store for us, we have to listen to what the Spirit says. Now what the Spirit has said to the church in Ephesus is very simple, right? You have forsaken your first love. Remember, repent, and do. And so if the church begins to respond to those instructions, what this final verse teaches us is that they are now on a road towards victory. Right? There's a discussion about to those who are victorious. And so it's a it's an admonition, it's an encouragement that if you do these things, you will overcome, you will conquer. That's another way to translate that word. And so it's a discussion on victory. And I think that's something we can all relate to. I'll, I'll admit some people are more competitive than others. We all know that. But raise your hand if you enjoy winning, right? Most of us, right? And, and I'm not saying like it has to be in sports, but just overcoming adversity, overcoming hardship, struggle, Right, you, you put all this work and this effort into it, then you finally get to experience some form of victory. That, that's a positive thing. And in my experience, that thrill of victory, no matter what arena it occurs in, typically loves to be shared with others. 
right? I was watching a March Madness game. I was watching that Final Four game, UCLA and Gonzaga. And I had come up to the church for something. And, uh, and I saw there's like a minute left. And I was watching, and so I pulled over. I was in the parking lot. I was like, I pulled over real quick because I wanted to see the end. And I see UCLA make that game tying shot. And I was like, oh, it's gonna go to second overtime. There's only three seconds left. And then the dude heaves it in from half court and makes it, right? So I'm literally in my car and I'm like, oh my gosh. And I'm like looking around for somebody to high five because that's the impulse, right? Victory, the thrill of it is to be shared. And so part of the reason I'm saying that is that this admonition to become victorious is something for the church, to celebrate alongside one another, to do so in community, to pursue this sort of victory. So what does that look like? How do we encourage one another and experience that sort of conquering or overcoming? Well, to give you a clearer picture, I wanna consult another piece of this letter to, the, uh, to, to Revelation, the, of the churches in Revelation. This comes in chapter 21. Uh, you don't have to turn there, but let me just read it to you. And it, it gives us a picture by giving us the alternative of not overcoming, right? So this is the, this is the downside. This is a picture of defeat. Right? This is the opposite. Uh, if we don't encourage one another in this way. In chapter 21, uh, there's a description of the new heaven and the new earth and all of its brilliance, all of its promises. And then John says along the way, right, it, to all those who are victorious, you will inherit all of this. This is yours. But then in verse eight, we get but, and we get a different description. Verse eight, it says, but the cowardly, the unbelieving, the vile, the murderers, the sexually immoral, those who practice magic arts, the idolaters, and all liars, they will be consigned to the fiery lake of burning sulfur. This is the second death. That's a hard teaching. But if you wanna know what the life of the non-victorious, those who don't overcome look like, that's it. And so in turn, we can use a scripture like that and create a, a more powerful picture of what it is we are to pursue, right? What are we to pursue? Well. Not cowardice, but courage, boldness, to be courageous, not to be unbelieving, but faithful, not to be vile, but seekers of good, not to be murderers and carry around hatred, as that's how Jesus would define murder, but to be compassionate, not, not sexual immorality, but purity, to pursuing servanthood rather than the practice of magical arts, to, to see Jesus as ultimate rather than idols, to pursue honesty and truth rather than lies. These are the pictures of those who are victorious. And that's what we should pursue collectively as well. And in and, and the way that, that the book of Revelation or in this letter of the church of Ephesus brings us home is by reminding all those that are pursuing this and seeking to overcome these things, there is a reward. Each letter uh, gets a reference to a, a unique reward that is in store for those who are victorious. And the one that is referenced here to the church in Ephesus is the tree of life, right? To those who are victorious, I'll give you the right to share in the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. Now that, that's the victory. Everybody that experiences some form of victory gets a reward. If you're in athletics, you get the ring or the championship trophy. If, if it's in work and you're that employee, you get the promotion, you get the raise. If you're in school, you get the honors designation and maybe a scholarship. We all are accustomed to some form of a reward. Isn't it great that that is true also for the kingdom of God? And so how do we understand the reward of tree of life? We're first introduced to the tree of life in Genesis, right? It was one of the trees that was in the middle of the garden. And then once the fall takes place and the curse takes place, then we are banished from the garden so that we do not share in the tree of life. That's 
That's why God kicks humanity out of the garden. And so it becomes this elusive thing, and, and if you really just begin to think of the symbolism behind it, that the penalty for the curse, the wages of sin, was death. Those who don't become victorious, they experience death. The, the symbolism of the tree of life is pretty simple. What is it? Life. What's your reward? Life. But what kind of life? And for that, we get a similar description. This one we do have for you. Revelation 22, starting in verse 1. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, as clear as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb down the middle of the great street of the city. And on each side of the river stood the tree of life, bearing 12 crops of fruit, yielding its fruit every month. And the leaves of the tree are the healing of the nations. No longer will there be any curse. The throne of God and of the Lamb will be in the city and his servants will serve him. They will see his face and his name will be on their foreheads. There will be no more night. They will not need the light of a lamp or the light of the sun for the Lord God will give them light and they will reign forever and ever. Can you imagine? Can you imagine? Right, that's the life that awaits us. Right, you think about the, the tree of life that bears fruit every month. What we see from that is that this is sustaining life. It's everlasting life. This is not a tree that withers. It is forever. It is eternal. The leaves are the healing of the nations. It's a restoration of God's creation, of humanity. Think of all the animosity, all the conflict, all the discord, all the hatred that exists amongst humanity. All of it gone, healed by the tree of life. Proximity to God, no longer distance. He is our life. We get to reign with him forever. The curse is no more. This is our reward. This is our hope that should compel us to dream and imagine what it means to live for Jesus. So if you, if you tie this letter to the church of Ephesus together and you look for maybe one main idea, while there could be more than one, let me offer one for us this morning. What's the main thing that this church needs to hear? Maintain your deep devotion to Jesus. Don't lose your love for him. Foster, maintain, and honor that commitment. Right? which is what leads us to Commitment Sunday. Because right? if we think about anyone that's truly victorious, right, you never really claim victory by being uh, a quitter. You, you never overcome adversity by being complacent and apathetic. You have to resolve. You have to commit day by day to work towards these things. And so if we wanna have that as the anchor of our hope, if this is what we long for, then that takes a day by day dying to self and honoring a commitment that fosters your deep devotion to Jesus. And so what does that look like? It's one thing to read descriptions of it in Revelation. How does that impact your Monday? How does that change the rest of your week? What do those commitments look like? And that's what today is all about. Let me give you some history behind Commitment Sunday, okay? Because this is something that we have been dreaming about and thinking about for more than a year. In fact, initially we thought we would be doing this last year. We've always envisioned it happening after Easter as a response to the cross and the gospel. Uh, and so we had plans to do it, but then COVID. And if you think back to where we were this time last year, we were still just trying to figure out how to do church in a pandemic, much less launch something like Commitment Sunday. So we held off and we've continued to pray about it. We, we were praying about it prior to that. And so this is something that's been in the works and in our thought process and discussion for quite some time. 
And, and we're excited about it, and we anticipate that it's not going away. Right? This is not something we just wanted to do in 2021. We want this to be a part of the annual rhythm of our church. And so let me try to explain to you kind of what we're, we're hoping to achieve. If you think about the prayer of UBC, right, we pray for the power of God to be unleashed in our lives, our church, our community, and our world so that every tongue, tribe, and nation can come to know and proclaim the saving work of Jesus Christ. We work through that intentionally. So the first of the year when we're going through the Lenten season, journeying to the cross, the question we put before you time and time again is how is God's power working itself out in your life? What is he leading you to do? That power should manifest itself towards some form of action, not just reflection and contemplation, right? When he really begins to work in you, it's gonna manifest itself in areas like transformation, right? Overcoming strongholds, addictions, overcoming forgiveness, grief, all these different things that we carry. It's gonna transform us. Maybe it's gonna give us purpose. It's gonna prompt us to engage in specific areas of need around us, right? It's going to change us towards action. That's what God's power does. And so part of what we wanna do is create that intentionality and say, well, what then is God asking you to commit to in your life? What is that power manifesting itself towards action? What does that devotion in your life truly look like? That's what leads us to a conversation about our church's key convictions. Now, it's been a while since we've talked about the key convictions in the church. Some of you that have been with us for quite some time, you know exactly what I'm talking about. Some of the newer folks or the guests, you, you may not have a, a construct of what that means. I'll quickly refer to them. We've, we've preached series on them. They're online. You can find more information. But the convictions are essentially the values of who we are, how we want to function, how we want to displace some of these commitments to Christ, right? We want to be gospel-centered. We want to be biblically guided, prayer-driven with an emphasis on fasting, discipleship-focused, fostering spiritual worship, holistic giving and surrender of ourselves, where families are valued and strengthened and where we are a part of and impact a loving community, both within these walls and beyond us, right? Those are convictions. So the point is this. Those are areas where we can all grow in our commitments. Those are all areas where we demonstrate our devotion to Jesus, right? That if we are gonna be devoted and committed to Christ, how is that impacting your approach to his word? How is that impacting your prayer life? How is that impacting your commitment to making disciples? How does it influence how you worship? All those things I just ran through, it should manifest itself in those arenas. So the first thing we wanna do with Commitment Sunday is have an intentional conversation about those things. And so this is where the survey comes in that I mentioned last week. Today at the conclusion of this service, around noon, you're gonna get an email in your inbox. If you're not on our email list, then you can contact us. We're also gonna publicize it uh, in, in other venues soon if we haven't already, and so you'll have plenty of opportunity to do it. And it's gonna be a list of questions that help you think more intentionally about these things, how those convictions are revealing themselves in your life. And so the first thing I would tell you is that I realize sitting down in a computer and answering a survey about your spiritual life can feel a little awkward, right? I get that, and for some of you, you'll be like, eh, that's not really my thing, I get it. But what I'm gonna challenge you is to say embrace it. Make it spiritual. Spend some time in prayer before you answer. Take your time, be honest. Don't, don't treat it like a customer satisfaction survey you get at a restaurant when you finish eating a meal, right? Increase the intentionality by how you approach it and the posture that you take. And essentially, the essence of the survey is to walk us through some of these things and say, what, where are you in this season of life? Would you say that you're just surviving right now? Like your, your prayer life is just barely hanging on? Maybe it's steady, maybe it's thriving. Maybe you have questions about this. You need, you need to have further conversations. Maybe you want to actually help serve 
in these arenas, but, but think through it intentionally and look at it through a personal lens. What does God's power look like in your life? What are those personal commitments? Now, I want you to know that when you complete this survey, the only folks that are gonna see it are myself and the ministers on staff, and, and we're gonna maintain confidentiality. We wanna see it because, number one, we wanna know how to pray for you. We wanna know how to encourage you. There are certain areas on that survey where you may ask for more conversation. You may say, hey, I wanna serve in this area, so we need to know those things, but we're not gonna share all that stuff, so you can, you can honestly answer those things and know it'll be kept safe because what I want you to know is that if anybody knows what you're saying, it'll be because you told them. But now let me add, I would encourage you, share it. Right, true community, true community is not ashamed of coming forward and saying, man, I'm struggling here. Or celebrate with me because this is actually going well. True community shares those things. And so I would encourage you, after you've done this, take time with your D group or your close network and talk about these things. Share them with one another. Encourage one another in what God is doing in your life. Right? That, that's, that's step one, right? Those personal commitments. Now, from there, though, what I want us to recognize is that it's not just what God is doing in our lives, but what is he doing in our church? It's, it's not just personal. It's communal. Right, that we, we don't wanna just be a collection of individuals that just happen to show up and see each other once a week, but that collectively God is equipping us as his body to go and to serve him and for us collectively to demonstrate our commitment and our devotions to him. So what does that look like? Well, that's part of what I really wanna unpack this morning. This is what leads us into kind of the vision of UBC, right? What we've been dreaming about and imagining, and you've heard me talk about this before as well. We've had Sermon series on this one. And I typically refer to a couple of different arenas, three distinct arenas. We talk about discipleship and justice and recovery. Right, there, there are little kind of taglines that we've attached to those to help define them. When we've talked about discipleship, we say, hey, we wanna be disciples who make disciples. We talk about uh, justice. We wanna be people who love justice. We don't wanna just sit back and react to the world around us. We wanna go and be a light in the darkness. Right? We wanna go and pursue that. We talk about recovery. We want to be a place for healing, a place where people can come and, and be restored, be renewed, right? Those are the taglines that we've given to them. And so we, we've said, if this is where God is leading us and we want to pursue those things, then let's, let's create some goals. What does it look like? What is God prompting us towards? What, what are the actions that we want to see in those arenas collectively as a church? And so, so that's, that's what we're going to kind of unveil this morning. And let me offer a couple of disclaimers. Um, we're gonna track it. I don't know how yet, <laughs> um, because I wanna have that right balance. Like, I don't wanna have like thermometers on the stage and all that other stuff, but we're not gonna just talk about it and forget it. Because one of the most powerful things in the body of Christ and the kingdom of God is the power of testimony. You saw it earlier. So we wanna share what God is doing in our church. So we're gonna figure out a way, be it online or in some capacity, for us to keep this in front of each other and for us to, to share what God is doing in these these. Uh, achievements that he's doing in the body of Christ. Now, what time frame are we using when we start to unpack some of these goals here in a moment? Uh, I just want you to know from my vantage point, I'm using a year, okay? Uh, mainly because we said we want this to be a part of our annual rhythm. So every year, come back after Easter, we'll have a chance to kind of re-envision and reimagine and assess where we are. Let me be very clear, I fully understand God can go way quicker than a year. And he might also slow us down right? His timing is ultimately what will be determinant of this, but we're still going to define something just to help us know how to proceed, 
right? If you make a goal for yourself that you're gonna lose 10 pounds, okay, well, define the time frame in a week or in a year. That totally changes your approach. So we wanted to define a time frame. It'll be within the next year. That's kind of what we're talking about here. We do have numerical goals. You guys know me well enough to know I'm not a numbers guy. I'm not just sitting there obsessing over numbers over and over and over again. I care way more about the quality of what God is achieving in us than the quantity of what he is achieving in us. But I also don't want us to be afraid of numbers as if they can't play a certain role in our ability to pursue some of these commitments. So we've identified some targets and some goals for us. We may exceed them, we may fall short, I don't know, but we've identified them, right? And so what are some of these goals? Let's work in reverse order. I wanna start with recovery. Another word I'm gonna give and start using for recovery is renewal or renewed. And part of that is because a lot of times when you hear about recovery, it's easy for us to classify that into a certain category, that it only applies to folks that are recovering from addictions, right? So I'm a recovering alcoholic, I'm a recovering addict, and so a good segment of people will say, well, that doesn't really apply to me. But if you put it in the context of scripture, think of 1 Corinthians and what Paul says to the church in Corinth. What does he say? Outwardly we are wasting away, inwardly we are what? Being renewed day by day. We all need renewal. But what this is meant to achieve is to recognize that there are certain seasons where some of us really are in need of renewal. Right? We are, we are carrying some heavy burdens and it could manifest itself in a number of different capacities. Right? It could be substance abuse and addiction, but it could also just be grief, it could be loneliness, it could be depression, it could be anger. But there's a lot of ways that these things drag us down and we need renewal. So we say we wanna be a place for healing. We wanna be a place for that renewal. We want this to be a church where it is safe for you to come in and be honest and transparent and say, my life is not what I think it should be. I'm struggling with this. My marriage is in shambles. I don't know how to parent my kids. My, my parents are abusing me or hurting me or whatever it is. My friendships are on the rocks. Whatever those struggles are, we need to create a safe place where you can come, acknowledge those, and find healing and renewal. And so, so how do we do that? Well, what we've said is that we wanna have at least, this is the, this is the low-hanging fruit, okay? This is the easy win for us because we've been talking about this goal. We just haven't finished it off yet. We wanna have two groups dedicated to renewal and recovery, two fully functioning groups. We have one that started, a ladies' group that started at the beginning of the year. We still wanna get a men's win kicked off. And so within the next year, let's get two fully flourishing groups. And let me be honest, it's just the tip of the iceberg. Right? We, we know that there could, could be and should be many more, and we envision opportunities for people to gather together and share those testimonies and worship that renewal that has taken place in their life. But the first number I would ask you to think of is two. Two fully functional, dedicated groups focused on recovery and renewal. Can you imagine what that looks like? Let's look at justice. Uh, justice is, again, part of what we wanna be. We wanna be a light in the darkness. We don't wanna just sit back and react. Here's the struggle with justice. There are numerous injustices and manifestations of oppression all around us. And so when we try to tackle all of them, we kind of diminish our impact, stretch ourselves too thin. So we have to figure out a way to focus our efforts. Now, we're never gonna be exclusive, right? You, you've already heard it. We're doing prison ministry. We're, we're feeding the homeless. We're tutoring families. We're doing a bunch of different things. We're always gonna have numerous on-ramps but I do want us to have a particular focus. And our focus in the area of justice is gonna be on advocating for the orphan. And the reason for that 
after a lot of prayer and reflection on it, is because that ends up being one of the most common denominators for all the other challenges that you often observe in society, right? Broken homes, fatherless homes are one of the greatest predictors of incarceration, teen pregnancy, human trafficking, depression, anxiety, loneliness. So if you, if you can help provide a, self, a safe and loving home to a child, you help combat all those other challenges and oppressions. So we're gonna zero in on that, right? So, so what is our number here? 20. I'd love us to see 20 families step forward and intentionally commit to advocating for the orphan. Now, what does that look like? I, I, it's important for you to know there are numerous ways to do that, but it's going beyond just I'm praying, right? It's, it's intentionally engaging. I recognize not everybody is gonna say that I'm willing to foster and adopt a child. I get that. I, I hope that within that 20, we have at least five families that come forward and do that, but that's my personal goal right now. But in addition to that, you can step forward by participating in organizations like CASA and advocating for children. You can step forward and become a family that's gonna provide respite care. There's so much support that needs to be provided. Imagine people coming forward and saying, hey, I wanna be that family. Our, 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 our family, our home is going to be that place where we bring in foster care children or we want to adopt. And then imagine other families coming alongside them and saying, well, we're gonna provide respite care for you. We're gonna be a cost advocate for you. And we see a communal effort in this arena. 600 children were removed from homes last year. That number should never go up on our watch. And our church should be one of the main reasons it goes down. 20. 20 families that would at least intentionally engage and advocate for the orphan. Can you imagine what that would look like? Let me give you the last one and then we'll be done. Discipleship. This is the foundation to everything we do. It's the foundation to the other two. Because we're, we're seeking not just to provide a, a safe home and a warm meal. We are bringing people into an understanding of the love of Jesus. That's what we desire to do. Everything is fueled by discipleship. We want to be disciples who make disciples. And so when you begin to think through what does this look like, how do we set a goal for this, you have to think a little bit differently because I'll acknowledge those others, not everybody's going to be in a season where they need recovery or renewal or want to participate in that. Not everyone is going to feel stirred towards adoption and advocating for the orphan. I get that. You know what's different about this one? It's not a calling. It's a command. And it's not from me. It's from Jesus. Right? This is for all of us. No matter your life stage, no matter your season, no matter your background, no matter your personality type, we are all commanded and commissioned to go and make disciples. So how do you measure that? Good news. Jesus defined it for us. It's very simple. He gave us two things. Baptize and teach them to obey. Right? That's it. That's the metric. I didn't create it. That was Jesus again. And so let's, let's unpack that. In my experience, both personally, as I've looked at American Christianity and even our church to a certain extent, here's what I see, is that when we think about those measurables towards going and making disciples, we really cozy up next to the second one, teaching to obey. That we can figure out. But even then, we kind of water it down and just cut out the obey part. And we just teach. And we teach and we study and we teach. We need to infuse obedience, commitment, action, demonstration of true devotion. 
But if we can just refine that one, I would say that one's not too far off. You look at our D groups, that's part of what they're there for. You look at Sunday morning, all these are intended to be environments where we can learn what does it mean to continue and foster our devotion to Jesus. The greater stretch typically for us is the first one, baptism. So here's the question I begin to ask myself. If a church isn't seeing a lot of baptisms, are they really effective at making disciples? And that question kept haunting me. Because I think the obvious answer is no. Now, I'll be the first to admit, we don't force people to get baptized. Only God does that. We plant seeds. We water the seeds. God makes it grow. But that doesn't mean we just kind of sit back and go, I don't know, it's up to him. He has commissioned us to go and declare his gospel so that we can see the fruit of baptism. So what does that look like for us? So follow the, the logic with me. Here was the question I began to ask. How many baptisms should our church see in a given year? I started asking people this question all the time. So many different arenas, so many different circles. It was great to see the variety of answers. Some people were very cautious, like, gosh, I don't know how many we see right now. I'll, I'll, I'll hedge my back, 12? Real, real tentative, conservative with it. Others were like, okay, well, we should challenge ourselves. Let's double it. Maybe like 20, 30. My favorite answer, he's in the room. I don't know if you remember saying this, but my favorite answer was having breakfast with a, with a friend of mine. And I said, how many baptisms should we see? And he didn't give me a number. He just smiled. He said, we should be waterlogged. <laughs> I love that way of thinking. So, so here is my question. When you start thinking about that, you go, okay, well, how many of us are there? That's really impossible to measure especially in a pandemic. Like we have data points. We, I could look at the totals of how many people join us in Sunday morning worship, how many join us online. I, I could look at, uh, you know, how many people are in a D group. It's about 263 right now. You heard Phoebe mention it earlier. We had 270 households give at least once during the year so far. There's a lot of ways. That it's so hard to pin down to a concise number. So you kind of have to just listen to what the Spirit says, so to speak. But it's in that range. And so my question that really began to drive this goal in my mind was it will stretch us the most, but I also think it's very accessible. Because here's my thinking. Is it unreasonable for us to think about it in terms of households? Not individualistically, but your household. Knowing that your household looks different from maybe the next person. Could still just be one person. Could be you and a spouse. Could be you and a family. Whatever your household looks like. Is it unreasonable for your household to think that over the next year, if there was one person in your life one person that you knew needed Jesus. Could be a family member, could be a neighbor, could be a colleague, could be somebody you haven't met yet. If you, if you think of one person, if you were willing to invest in them for a whole year, intentionally, sharing the love of Jesus with them, building that relationship, sharing the gospel with them, inviting them into that expression, is it unreasonable to think that that person would come to confess Jesus as Lord and desire baptism? and then be in an environment where they can learn what it means to follow him, is that unreasonable to think that each of us could do that in a year? Let me go ahead and answer for you. It's not. It's not unreasonable. So through a spirit-led math, the number I came up with was 200. 200 baptisms in the next year. Wouldn't that be great? Can you imagine that? Keep in mind on Pentecost there were 3,000 in a day right? And you saw demonstrations of it. Let me clarify for you. I'm not saying it has to always happen here, right? Part of the reason you saw videos of it is because we, we give people the flexibility. 
And if you wanna do this in a special service just with your family like Janae did, we can do that. If you have special ties to another church that you grew up in, like Cameron, you can do that. You wanna be baptized in a pool, in a lake, whatever, you can do that. Yes, you can do it here. So it's not saying it has to happen right there, but through our efforts, through our relationships, is it unreasonable for us to celebrate that what God is doing through you and the lives of others, that we would see 200 baptisms this next year? I don't think it's unreasonable at all. Can you imagine it? Now, let me, let me say this as we wrap it up, because I know we're running late. Whenever you put goals out there, one of the biggest fears in the back of our minds is, man, what if we fail? And that's a lot of times the reason we don't set goals, just out of fear. Can I just tell you, I'm not afraid of failure, because I don't think you can fail. Because it's not really about hitting a number. If we walk out of this with a greater devotion to Christ, then we've won. And, it, and quite honestly, if we don't hit those numbers, I'm totally comfortable standing before the Lord and say, sorry, we fell short seeking more baptisms, seeking more adoptions, seeking greater recovery. If we're gonna fail at something, let's fail at this and let God refine us in the process. But I don't think failure is really even an option because I think God will bless it, even if the outcome looks different than what you and I can imagine on a day like today. So let me ask you one last time, church. Take a look at this picture. What do you see? What do you imagine? I see the power of God being unleashed, stirring his children's hearts towards greater devotion. Close your eyes and let's, let's pray together. And as you close your eyes, I want you to imagine part of what we've discussed. I want you to imagine the strongholds in your own life, your own commitments, the personal things he's prompting you to. And I want you to imagine those refining you and sharpening you and growing you. I want you to imagine all that could take place when this becomes a true place of healing. The transformation. I want you to imagine testimony after testimony of people saying they've been renewed and the joyful celebration that comes with a church that can create that. I want you to imagine the, the faces of children that have been brought into homes. See them standing up here before us and us praying over them, dedicating them because they've been found and thinking about the families that rallied around them to make that happen. I want you to imagine people being united with Christ in baptism, joining him in his death so that they can join him in his resurrection, sharing that light and that commitment and us celebrating over and over and over again. I want you to imagine God's power being unleashed in our lives and in this church. And then I want you to stop and take a breath and realize that no matter what you have just envisioned, God can do immeasurably more. So Father, we surrender to you. And we confess that we desire this not to be our vision, but yours. Lead us accordingly to your glory, both now and forevermore. In Jesus' name, amen and amen.